0: Great. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to those of you on the live stream. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and we are delighted to have here Sir Bernard Jenkin to give the next in our series on what makes a successful Brexit. Bernard has been here in uh, and, and part of our work and part of our dialogue in many, many different uh, roles, but as you know, uh, is, has been Chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee since 2010, Member of Parliament since 1992, and um, particularly relevant to this discussion today is Chair of the Steering Committee of the European Research Group, the Eurosceptic Group, which put out one of its big reports yesterday. Bernard's going to talk um, with slides for some time, and then I and others will fire questions at him. Very warm welcome.
1: Thank you very much indeed. (coughs) Can everybody hear me? Yes. Um, Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I kind of rather suspect that you have probably um, had more uh, s- Brexit sceptics and Brexiteers on this platform, but um, mm-hmm. I am nevertheless very grateful, and I hope I don't annoy you all too much.
0: Sorry if yes. Um,
1: right, so the first answer to this question uh, is uh, n- well, not not what's on offer at the moment, not the draft EU withdrawal agreement with the outline political declaration as presented. Uh, The the UK would not take back control of its laws. The backstop could keep the whole of the UK in the Customs Union indefinitely. The UK could not choose to withdraw from the the backstop Customs Union without the consent or uh, there's a veto power. Uh, The UK would pay £39 or more for nothing in return. Uh, So the UK's subsequent negotiating position would be much weaker than it is now and the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice would not end. Um, because it uh, remains over the backstop and keeps us in the customs union. At least under Article 50, we can leave the EU, but leaving these arrangements would be subject to an EU veto. Northern Ireland would be treated differently from the rest of the United Kingdom and this would change the status of Northern Ireland without consent, which is a breach of the Belfast Agreement and not strengthening our precious union and gives a pretext for the SNP to demand something similar. And the way the UK leaves the EU must reflect why 17.4 million people voted Leave. The voters took this democratic choice incredibly seriously, and it was decisive. The present disputes reflect how perhaps direct democracy can sit uncomfortably on our tradition of representative democracy. The people voted to take back control. This was not just a slogan. Ashcroft polls showed, for example that 49% of Leave voters said that the biggest single reason for wanting to leave the EU was the principle that decisions should be taken in the United Kingdom. Concerns about the EU's democratic deficit is not confined to the UK. 60% across the EU now disagree with the statement, my voice counts in the EU. And who can blame them when you look at how decisions are made? The reasons for voting leave get ever stronger. Mr Juncker told the EP he wants more qualified majority voting. The euro is driving the eurozone towards the fiscal union David Cameron vetoed. Bruno Le Maire, uh, the French economy minister, says the EU must become a kind of empire. Both President Macron and Chancellor Merkel are calling for a European army. So the first condition for a successful Brexit is that we do actually take back control of our laws. Borders, money and trading relations with other countries. The decision to leave the EU is not an economic one, but restoring national self-government. Nevertheless, a successful Brexit... Must be a prosperous Brexit. People seem to forget that it is domestic policy which overwhelmingly determines whether a nation is competitive or not. Taking back national control over domestic law and economic policy will strengthen the UK's flexibility, agility, and freedom to compete. In today's world, it is harder and harder to compete. The EU is the slowest growing continental economy apart from Antarctica. In the year to end June this year, China grew at 6.7%, the US grew at 4.2%, the EU managed just 2.2%. So the UK has less interest in being tied to this zone of high regulation, low growth, declining birth rates, ageing populations, high unemployment and indeed continuing crisis. So why is the UK's negotiating effort? been so squandered on trying to preserve a trading and financial relationship in which the UK has become the loser. We're all familiar with how much the taxpayer loses to the EU, but the UK is also disadvantaged in the single market. Since 2002, the share of UK exports going to the EU has declined from 54.6% to 44.5%. Despite a supposedly inferior trading relationship with the rest of the world, our exports to the rest of the world now represent the majority of UK exports. This disadvantage is reflected in our net trading figures too. The UK has grown a trade deficit with the EU of nearly 80 billion. One third of this, 26 billion, is with Germany. Being in the EU seems to help them far more than it helps us. However, the UK runs a 40 billion surplus with non-EU countries trading across customs, frontiers and without enforced regulatory alignment. Of course, the UK's trade deficit is driven by our trade deficit in goods, since our services industries generate a surplus, but the rest of the world's surplus contributes the most. Looking at trade in goods... Looking at trading goods, the EU deficit is the main problem. Over 90 billion, 4.5% of GDP. The EU disadvantage is already also reflected in where the UK invests abroad, mostly outside the EU. There's the services slide as well. And if we look at the foreign direct investment, uh, we can see we're investing more outside the EU than in. So... It's somewhat perverse to argue that the EU status quo in the trade of goods is so much to our advantage. We could accelerate growth if we controlled our own regulatory standards on goods, our tariff schedules, quotas and trades policy, and we were free to use the full spectrum of trade levers to achieve our own bespoke trading relationships with the rest of the world. And that's what a successful Brexit looks like. It also means leaving the customs unit. It is wrong to argue that the costs of customs declarations would be too high or that delays would destroy just-in-time supply chains for UK manufacturers. These industries are important, and we could do much with tax, training, investment, R&D support and employment policy to make them more competitive, not less. But let's put the UK JIT supply chain industries in their proper context, in economic terms and, indeed, in terms of jobs. These industries should not determine the entire shape of Brexit. Yesterday we published this document, uh, Fact Not Friction, and it dispels the myths of leaving the customs union. customs union. Modern customs declarations are digital. Checks are only made where there is a perceived risk of non-compliance, so in, in, a, in a tiny proportion of cases... The WTO does not require cheques, only confidence in compliance. And whenever ministers are pressed to produce the WTO text that they say requires cheques, they can't produce it. There are already cheques required on EU-UK trade for VAT, excise duties and illegal items. So, in fact, there's far less change than imagined. Um, Every every transaction across uh, EU frontiers requires paperwork. Uh, Norway and Switzerland show no disadvantage being outside the customs union. Customs and rules of origin declarations could not possibly cost what HMRC estimates... ...or the whole world would be clamouring to be in customs union. Um, And JIT supply chains in fact operate across customs frontiers everywhere in the world. 21% of imported motor components for UK motor assembly are imported from outside the EU... Uh, across customs frontiers, and we don't hear motor manufacturers saying this makes it impossible to manufacture just in time. Customs checks could, in fact, be conducted away from frontiers, and indeed that is now something the Prime Minister herself is going to Brussels to discuss with Monsieur Barnier. So the short-term impact of Brexit. Well, the departure from the EU will not be a great economic shock or feel like a big change The UK's regulations will remain the same on the 30th of March as they were the previous day. In the words of former Bank Bank of England Governor Mervyn, now Lord King, 30 or 40 years down the road, if you give people a chart of British GDP and ask them to point to where we left the EU, they won't be able to see it. And it's not just Brits. David Foucault's Lando, Chief Economist of Deutsche Bank, Germany's biggest bank, said... Over a 20-30 to year horizon, the UK will do just as well or better than the EU. Over a generational period, the UK is going to come out looking just fine. He referred to our um, unbureaucratic mindset and our flexible exchange rates. (coughs) I'm sorry, I've gone ahead. (coughs) The Treasury's record of forecasting the effects of Brexit are discredited. (coughs) Economic forecasts, are only as good as their underlying assumptions. So why will the Treasury not release their assumptions? The Treasury's pre-referendum forecasts were wrong on jobs. The red line is the worst-case scenario we were um, shroud-waved with. And wrong on GDP growth. So what will be different about what they forecast about the effects of a WTO Brexit? Well, of course, predictions of widespread disruption are not based on evidence. Last year... Xavier Bertrand, president of the Haute-de-France region, said um, we, could, we, we have to do everything to guarantee fluidity. 30% of Spanish grapes, berries or onions, 31% of Dutch poultry, 82% of Irish milk are exported to the United Kingdom. Who wants to put such things at risk by insisting on inspectors with clipboards at every pause? Well, that's not going to happen and the the, the suggestion that the EU would intentionally cripple their financial services sector by introducing purposeless barriers had been dispelled by the EU Commissioner on Financial Regulation. A WTO Brexit would have short-term risks, but would remove the long-term risks of being trapped in a kind of interminable Brexit, and would give the UK instant control over its tariff schedules, product standards and trading relations, rather than waiting for an indefinite transition period to end. The UK would immediately be taken seriously in trade negotiations with the US or with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The effect of Article 50 does actually curtail any financial liability to the EU, as confirmed by the House of Lords Constitution Committee. So that even if we did pay some extra money to the EU as we leave, in order to buy some goodwill, so the government would have billions to spend to cut taxes, boost investment, and to spend on cash-starved public services. Above all, a successful Brexit must deliver voters what they thought they were voting for, which was endorsed by the manifestos of both the main parties in the subsequent general election. The 585 pages of opaque, obscure, and undemocratic text is exactly what people were voting against. The choice was between remain or leave. Now, if you're offered ratatouille or trifle, and if you only slightly prefer one over the other, the solution is not to consume some of both at the same time. The UK's former EU Commissioner, Lord Hill, said during the second reading of the EU Withdrawal Bill that we should prioritise shaping our own future over preserving the status quo. And I agree with that. Brexit is a profound change, in the way we are choosing to govern ourselves. It does raise fundamental questions about what sort of country we are and we want to be. And once this is over, we will only have concluded a successful Brexit if we also all think about how we heal the rifts and wounds of this deeply divisive period. That is a challenger, challenge for leavers and remainers alike. But Brexit is not an economic crisis like the oil price hike of the 1970s or the 2008 banking collapse. It's not like 9 11 or a natural disaster. It's not like a decision to go to war. It is mostly a crisis in the Westminster mind. A few may suffer disruption or inconvenience when we leave, but most will not notice. I'm reminded what the chair of the Remain campaign said uh, just before the referendum. Thank you
0: very much. Thank you very much indeed. And th- thanks indeed for the slides and engaging um, with this as we absolutely want um, with the, uh, the numbers and the detailed arguments. Let me ask you at the beginning, though, um, what you would say to people who say, look, the Prime Minister and her deal has delivered on what many people Say they wanted, which is to do something about immigration, to control immigration, but then to keep close ties with the European Union?
1: Well, I think um, um, that wasn't the question on the ballot paper. Um, and the, as I pointed out, most people, I think the immigration question, and have, have been, been very closely involved with the official Leave campaign, the immigration question was uh, a talisman of the kind of relationship or the kind of lack of accountability... that people feel that politicians uh, excuse themselves for in the European Union. The, the, the shrug, oh, well, that's a matter for the European Union. We can't do anything about that. Um, in, in every sector of society has at times driven people absolutely mad. And th- that is what the referendum was about. It wasn't just about immigration. It was about taking back control. And making people accountable for the immigration policy. Making people accountable for the laws that are made in this land.
0: All right, thanks for that. I mean, I think, you know, the truth is we probably don't know exactly what Well, I mean, the other one was the money. The money.
1: But, again, the excuse that we just have to pay this money because the EU tells Mm. us to pay this money, at a time, I mean, it's one of the bizarre things about the the agreement. I I may well finish up voting for um, an improved agreement that hands over yet more billions of pounds to the European Union if I can see a clear way out of it at the end of it. But the, um, um, the idea that we should be giving money to relatively rich countries in Europe on a regular basis yeah. when we can't even afford proper social care, we can't staff our hospital wards properly, we can't put enough police on the streets, this drives people mad. Yeah.
0: So I want to be quite clear, where you are at the moment, as we're talking right now, we have the deal that Theresa May has got... I will vote start, against the start, deal start, as it is. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And in your view, is no deal better than what she has now? Right?
1: Absolutely, which is what the Prime Minister herself has always said.
0: And she hasn't said that about this deal? No,
1: but she's always mm-hmm. said that no deal is a perfectly viable option.
0: Right, and, 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 and that, mm-hmm. that is your, your view as, as, think, as uh, no, far as this, this, this particular le- leaving, deal? Leaving, well, yeah.
1: when you say no deal, of course, mm-hmm. we're not leaving into a completely absent framework. And in fact... Um, what focus groups have actually shown is people say, well, I don't want no deal because we've got to carry on trading with the EU. But when you point out there's a WTA framework in order to continue trade, what, well, you mean you, we can still trade with the EU even if there's no deal? Oh, well, then we should leave with no deal. Um, because actually the effects on trade would be pretty marginal. And in fact, one of the things the paper presents yesterday, presented yesterday is how the, um, the NAFTA free trade agreement has been more positive for trade growth between Canada and the United States, than um, any customs union has ever been. The idea that customs union is some kind some kind of optimal uh, trading relationship, I think, is one of the myths that we need to bust.
0: Though not uh, not uh, beneficial enough in the view of the president of the the, the United States. Um, let me just Well, well the, actually the, just a
1: minute. He signed yeah. up to a revised NAFTA yes, he agreement, so he's obviously very happy with it.
0: Uh, he's very happy with the new terms yes, exactly. uh, for, for the U.S. Yes. We might co- come on to this yeah. point. because But I, w- I want to stay for the moment on the, the question of um, the costs to us of coming out of uh, a close relationship with the EU, coming out of the uh, Single Market and Customs Union, and, uh, and what WTO rules might mean for us. Um, if it's not going to cost us very much, in your view, that we can still keep trading with the, the EU... Why is there so much value then to doing deals, free trade agreements with other countries if if uh, uh, a trading relationship doesn't bring you a lot of benefits?
1: Um, Well, it would be better... It would be more optimal to develop trading relationships with countries that are growing much faster than the EU than to hang on to a declining share of our exports um, on the present basis. And the other other, um, question about our trading with the EU we are locked into a regulatory framework, which is largely not of our own creation. And it tends to advantage large multinational companies who set very high barriers, high, um, barriers to entry for competitors. So, I mean, we are in an arrangement where, frankly, the rest of the European Union has designed the regulation for itself, particularly Germany, and then they sell their goods to us at above world prices. I don't see that that's necessarily um, a, a, an advantage to us. Because, because, of course, we can only buy those goods from outside the EU across a tariff barrier and okay. through, a, a, a non, through a whole lot of non-tariff barriers, which may not necessarily yeah. be to our advantage. So we buy German machine tools and Italian shoes and French, um, French cheese when, in fact, these things could be made elsewhere in the world, perhaps at less, co- at less cost and more competitively and more variety for our consumers. I mean, why we have to pay tariffs on oranges when we don't grow any oranges in this country? And there's no advantage to our economy protecting ourselves from the import of oranges with a 16% tariff barrier. I mean, that's just a small example. But let me just make the emphasis in my remarks. These are very marginal economic issues. But it is rather odd that this whole debate has been so much about trade, when in <coughs> fact it was a constitutional question. It was, it was a fundamental question of de- self-determination okay. and self-government. Okay. Um, the point about my remarks is to demonstrate it may be six of one and half a dozen of the other, the Mervyn King point. Um, you know, it's the structural things within our own economy that are going to determine our economic growth, far more than the trading relations we have with other countries.
0: Things about housing and productivity. And, absolutely and, 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 and right. N- n- completely right. And so on. But the reason that people keep on going on about trade, I absolutely take your point that there is a big you know, flank of the argument that is about sovereignty and about you know, how people want to run this country. But it the reason the people keep on going on about trade is because it affects the economy so directly and because that affects people's lives so so directly, which is why the ERG put out this big... People Probably just saw the customs union yesterday. Yeah. So, and you've talked, and, and so, you know, one of the points that people say to uh, people making your argument is look, you're making too light. You've talked uh, of the disruption of leaving uh, the, the single market and customs union. You've talked about some slight disruption. Mervyn King talks very grandly about 30, 40 years, which is a very long stretch in a political life or indeed in an ordin- ordinary life. Um, when people say to you, look, coming out uh, uh, in the event of no deal, this is going to be a big shock to the UK. We wouldn't, it would be all kinds of real disruption to medicines, to uh, uh, supply chains, to travel, all this kind of thing. What, what, what is your answer to, well, I mean, let's, to let's that just, short-term Let's just talk threat. medicines.
1: The government is taking precautionary measures to make sure if there is disruption, uh, then uh, people will have their medicines. If you listen to the lunchtime news on Friday on Radio 4, you'll have heard the um, chief executive of the company that imports the insulin for Theresa May. This followed her comment that her her insulin comes from Denmark. Well, they are increasing their stockpile from 8 weeks to 16 weeks. And the BBC interviewer tried to get him to say that Brexit was going to be a problem. And he said, no, no, don't worry, everyone will get their medicines. Now... You know, there comes a point where you just wonder why people are stoking this, um, um, why the Treasury will not release their, uh, uh, their assumptions on their forecasts, for example, because they don't want you to know uh, that they are stoking another, I mean, bluntly, a fear campaign. Um, I think people are... There are some people that are anxious about this. Mm. Um, maybe people project their love compa- of the European... And many companies, too. Um, some companies... Um, 95% of companies don't trade with the EU at all. Now, I know that's, a, that's not representative of, the, of their economic importance, but I showed you on the slide there how tiny proportion uh, how the, the supply chain industries are such a tiny proportion of our overall economic activity. And the idea that these, this tiny, tiny proportion of our economy, important industries as they are, should determine the whole shape of Brexit. And it, again, it, it's assumed this disruption...
0: Well, it's not I mean, do you, know, you don't do have... Know, they're not supply chain <laughs> industries,
1: but you haven't okay, got agriculture do you know how and many financial times, services in there. Yeah. Do you know how many times Operation Stack has been brought into um, action since 1998?
0: As you obviously do know, please do tell well, us. Well, it's
1: 211 times. And um, for one period, it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the M25, it regularly stacks up on a, on a, on a regular basis. If we don't have the just... In, I mean, the just-in-time industries do complain about the state of the motorways, but... You know, this is like the weather. Now, if you really believe that the, there are three treaty obligations the EU needs to observe before they would, they would have to breach in order to cause deliberate disruption in our ports, um, not least one of uh, their own treaty, their good neighbour policy, and that they're meant to promote free trade, it's in their treaties. And the, uh, and the WTO rules there are there to facilitate customs, not to... not to put put up barriers they want to remove barriers to trade so the idea that they can cite the rules of the WTO and say well we'll have to check everything with a clipboard do you know when when a a wet stamp was last used uh, in Europe (laughs) nobody uses wet stamps on any trade uh, leaving or entering the European Union since 1992 it's all digital and this is all perfectly possible we've got the CDS system um, being developed to take over from the chief system um, and even if our systems are not ready, we're not going to tell um, these people, oh, well, you, haven't, you haven't gone through the system, we're not letting your goods in. Um, what, what we will develop very quickly is checks away from the border. And if somebody is bringing something in, we'll probably, if, there's, if it's necessary, give them three months to pay their tariff or to prove their product compliance. I mean, on day one, all the products coming into the United Kingdom on all the products we're exporting will be identically regulated on both sides of the... The frontier. So, if your customs compliance checks are there to give you confidence that there is product compliance, you start with a very, very, very high presumption of compliance. So, any disruption would be simply perverse. Now, you may think that the EU or the French are that unpleasant. Well, if the EU is determined to do that, it's a rather good, good thing we're leaving this dysfunctional organization.
0: You referred in there to the government's preparations for no deal. Uh, are you confident in those preparations?
1: Um, I think the government could have got much further ahead. But the one thing the British Civil Service is very, very good at is pulling out all the stops at the last minute and doing whatever's ever ever's needed to be done. And I, 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 you know, we're not going to um, put up barriers of our own. And that point about the, well, the, the um, um, other people in around the Padicale region. I mean, this is the, the, um, the jewel in the crown of a rather depressed area of northern France. The last thing they're going to want to do is to create circumstances where mm. people want to import their goods to the European Union at some other port. They're going to want to preserve the competitiveness of that port. And that's why they're saying, who would think of such a thing, of disrupting trade?
0: Mm. And something we've done quite a bit of work on, are the government's preparations, and while we certainly wouldn't disagree with well, the, your gov- the description co- of the civil mm. service's capacity for work, I'm mm. um, not sure we're quite as confident on Well, uh, what, the go- what the government the did a couple of weeks ago
1: was to say, we are considering um, contingency arrangements in order to divert trade mm. to mm. other channel ports. Mm. And that's what provoked the outcry from, from Calais, mm. because they don't want us to do that. Mm. Um, and if we're prepared to do that, we've kind of flushed them out.
2: Mm.
0: You mentioned NAFTA. What what makes you think that we would get good free trade agreements with other countries?
1: Well, I've just been in Washington. Um, The one concern uh, conveyed to me by our diplomatic mission as well as by uh, Americans is that we're not going to be in a position to do a free trade agreement with the United States uh, because we're going to be tied in knots for too long or tied in knots forever. Um, I don't suggest it'll be easy. I don't actually suggest it's that important. The United States is... Uh, already our single biggest export market um, our single biggest destination for foreign direct investment uh, in national terms um, uh, it's a question of how we could enhance that relationship um,
0: by single uh, you mean but you're not including the EU as one
1: no, country no, be, oh, right, right.
0: Well, it, well that does make a difference yes it does um, what would it take for you to support the deal a deal that Theresa May is trying to get through Parliament what changes would you
1: want well, I'd have to read it and be happy with it. And there's a danger in, um, in settling on that problem or that mm-hmm. problem or that problem. Then resolve that and you haven't seen another problem. Um, um, obviously, the, back, the backstop issue has got to be resolved. I mean, it is extraordinary. Even Moldova, in their association agreement, have got a one-month notice period so that they can leave unilaterally. Uh, at present, in the draft, there is no unilateral right for the United Kingdom to leave the backstop which means we could be stuck in the customs union. I think that's what the the DUP are really, really upset about. Um, And the fact that the the terms of the backstop start to divide them. I mean, it is ironic that somehow um, a, a customs frontier with invisible infrastructure at the border is regarded as a breach of the Good Friday Agreement, but the idea of separating Northern Ireland and changing the status mm. of Northern Ireland with a frontier down the IRA does not constitute a breach of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. And I think that um, David Trimble went to see Michel Barnier and impressed upon him. I mean, he's Nobel Prize peace prize winner, one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement. Maybe you ought to have him to come and explain to you about this matter.
0: Mm. <laughs> so we have indeed had, had him here. Um, the, um, so the, really, the, for you, the backstop, the Irish border, is the biggest question. I absolutely take the point there are lots and lots of other clauses show. in this in I this mean, The, the
1: other um, big thing to swallow is um, we were being told at the outset... I mean, it is ironic, Article 50 does say that we should be negotiating the withdrawal agreement. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but... but um, uh, in the context of our f- intended future relationship or whatever it is. Um, uh, and that would suggest that, that actually we should have decided on what the future relationship is so that we can mm. place the negotiations in context. So, once again, the EU is in breach of its own treaties. It was always intended as a trap, of course, Article 50. We'd have been in a much stronger position if Article 50 hadn't existed and we'd have been negotiating under the Vienna Conventions for exit from the EU. Um, I... I when, when, An
0: interesting point. Well, when, uh, during, when the
1: Lisbon Treaty came through uh, 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 and we were debating it on the floor of the House, I said, we don't need this. This is, this is unnecessary. And after the referendum, I did suggest to the government that, um, and in public that we shouldn't trigger Article 50 until we have negotiated what we want um, because otherwise we'd be put in a straitjacket, and that is exactly mm-hmm. what's happened. I mean, I think the people perhaps negotiating this on our behalf wanted that to happen because they would prefer that we were in a weak position um, because then they'd get the sort of Brexit that they want. Um, do you mean
0: the civil service
1: by that? Then? Um, I think a lot of people... Do, who do you mean I, no, by the people right, negotiating okay. this on our behalf? The, the, there are a mixture of ministers in the government who are responsible. Um, I'm not going to start the blame game with right, the All right, but
0: the people service. who have been negotiating this include David Davis, well, Dominic Raab.
1: Well, actually, David Davis was pretty quickly shut out of the negotiations... Um, and perhaps should have woken up to that more quickly.
0: By going um, to Brussels?
1: Uh, well, uh, <laughs> he, he, he had the key negotiator m- removed from him in mm. September uh, 2016, um, removed from him and taken mm. to Downing Street. And from thereafter, he was... I mean, it's, it's a, a question about how the Cabinet government was being conducted during this period and up to Chequers. Mm. Um, because the Department of the Exiting of the EU did not seem to be in charge of exiting the EU. And, of course, the policy that was presented at Chequers was uh, nothing that he had seen until a few days beforehand, even though he had been preparing an alternative policy. So um, I think the the government has been conducted in a very odd way. But what I would say is there's a number of ministers who who were Remainers and... Philip Hammond, for example, made it absolutely clear he wanted the United Kingdom to stay in the Customs Union, and I think it's been Mm. very difficult for civil servants to decide what to do. Mm. But it's no secret that um, you know we've had a; it's been a sort of fifty-year orthodoxy, a a, a pro-EU or pro-engagement policy with the European Communities onwards, Um, and that is well embedded in the um, civil service now. I remember when Jeremy Hayward came, um, came to breakfast just after the referendum. And um, uh, and I, was, I said, I was expecting to see you looking rather miserable and down, fo- crestfallen. And he said, oh, no, he said, well, um, we're gonna have a new prime minister and we've got a completely new policy on Europe, but that's what we do. We've just got to turn it mm. on a sixpence. Now, if ministers had wanted the civil service to turn it on a sixpence, mm. that is what it would have happened. Margaret Thatcher did it on economic policy in the early 1980s. Um, Uh, And, to some extent, Tony Blair did it when he came in in Mm. 1997. Mm. That is not what happened Mm. under this Prime Minister and this government, and I Mm. don't blame the civil service for that. Mm. But I do think that she has been prone to take the orthodox advice Mm. that was existing in government. Mm.
0: You haven't, I think, as of this point, put in a letter asking, uh, as a leadership challenge, the BBC had. I can't 20... believe...
1: I thought this was a more highbrow occasion. It's very... very, very
0: <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> But no, I so, haven't. But <laughs> the spirit of this discussion is, <laughs> you know, how to make a... how to get a successful Brexit. So from from here, where we are now, going forward. So your call is then not for a change of leader, it's for Theresa May to go back to Europe and... And she's going back this afternoon,
1: yeah. um, having mm-hmm. received a delegation... I mean, I'm sure she's had discussions with the DUP, but she's also had discussions with um, Ian Duncan Smith and a, a group that has been um, proposing, right from the beginning, of our paper on um, how to have a, um, an invisible front customs frontier in Northern Ireland, um, where we have been consulting very serious customs experts. Incidentally, the expert that we um, uh, that we have been using. Uh, uh, is um, a representative of a trade, organis- trade organisation in the EU when he appeared before the Northern Ireland Committee one of the questions he was asked is what is a customs broker so you know, maybe the level of knowledge um, amongst uh, even MPs about customs and customs clearances is not as intense as it should be and we find we've been um, presenting things to civil servants and to officials in Brussels which they genuinely did not know about um, and I think that's hopefully going to uh, change the conversation around the backstorm.
0: Great. Let's have some questions. Okay. Uh, Loads of hands up. Right, let's start here. Yes. Uh, Doug, can you make the microphone, please, and uh, if you like, say who you are.
1: Uh, good morning. Uh, good my morning. name is
0: Sarah Main. I'm the Director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. Um, thank you very much for your talk this morning. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you might um, set out in a little bit more detail. If you see, um, I suppose, uh, the, what I see as the UK's scientific strength, a kind of you know global scale mm-hmm. scientific strength, Um how do you envisage that in a successful Brexit? Um, I, you know, some of your graphs, I think, were sort of downplaying the, the um, importance of some of the industries that are associated with R&D, and I understand that point, but I just wondered if you could set out whether you think the UK's research and innovation strength is an important facet of its future and how you would see that playing out for the UK? Thank after. you
1: very much. Well, I, I absolutely believe that uh, um, science and research um, um, and engineering in this country is extremely important and international cooperation and collaboration is extremely important and um, I don't believe that the European Union has a monopoly on our international collaboration nor do I believe that, that European universities and European, union, European industries will not wish to collaborate with the best science uh, where we have it in the European, in, uh, where we have it in the United Kingdom, I do understand that science and engineering research in this country is supported by the Horizon programmes and um, uh, European programmes for scientific collaboration, and that is the mindset that the, much of the scientific community has been placed in. There are scientists um, um, who remember what international collaboration was like before we were in the European Union Um, and they rather regret there isn't more collaboration across the Atlantic and with um, other countries around the world that the emphasis has been so on the European Union Um, I also think that um, uh, the government is right to maintain our R&T budget and the the opportunity as we leave the European Union is to increase it Um, I think the science and uh, research is one of the crown jewels of our country and it should be nurtured. Uh, but I do appreciate uh, how much uncertainty a lot of people in science and research are feeling at the moment. Um, I think the government could have done more to reassure you, um, and I wish they had.
0: Thanks.
1: Um, here on the aisle, and then I'm, I'll come over here. Uh, yes, John Pete from The Economist. Uh, since Chequers, um, and indeed before, the Prime Minister was frequently saying it's my deal or no deal, and you've dealt quite a lot with your view of what you call the WTO deal. In the last two weeks, she started to say it's my deal, no deal, or no Brexit, um, and quite a few people have started to make the argument that if this deal is voted down, there is that increases the chance that Brexit won't happen. Do you take that at all seriously? Well, uh, I do in the very short term. I'm, I, I think the political situation is <clears throat> is um, extraordinarily unpredictable. I can't quite, quite work out how we finish up with no Brexit. With another
2: referendum?
1: Um, well, if there was another referendum, to be another referendum, there would have to be another Act of Parliament, and that would take many, many, many months. So there would have to be an extension to Article 50. Um, I think it's unlikely that the European Court of Justice is going to rule in favour of the Scottish application that we could revoke Article 50 unilaterally. Even if we attempted to revoke the the notice, um, it would need another Act of Parliament. So that's another legislative barrier. Um, uh, We are, in fact... um, uh, It would require all the Member States to agree to extend Article 50. Um, There is no power in the... Um, under the EU Withdrawal Act to extend Article 50 for an indefinite period. The only reason the Minister can bring forward an order to extend Article 50 is for reasons required by the administration of Brexit. Um, And um, at the moment, there would have to be fresh legislation for us to... I mean, the House of of Commons um, voted to have a referendum in the end, overwhelmingly. uh, Voted to accept the referendum result. Thank you, Gina Miller, for the notification of Withdrawal Act. That was overwhelmingly passed by Parliament. Um, and we have now passed the EU Withdrawal Act, so we're leaving on the 29th of March. All that is set in legislation. All that is being decided. Um, and the other thing that, that I would just beg people to consider, I've been involved in politics since the mid-1980s um, as, as a student... Um, and um, um, the, I, I remember the Bruce speech, and it's worth rereading the Bruce speech, because, in fact, when you read the Bruce speech, uh, uh, you know, if we'd settled for that, we wouldn't be here now. <laughs> um, uh, if John Major had vetoed the Maastricht Treaty, if John Major had had a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty, we wouldn't be here now. Um uh, Monetary Union wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been a migration crisis. We wouldn't have had the, the Schengen... You know, we, we, would have, we would have a completely different European Union. Um, we, we, would be, we would still be in something called the European Economic c- Communities which would have been I think to our advantage um, the, um, since that period it has been quite clear that the European governments have wanted to take the European Union in one pred- pred- direction you know, France and Germany and the core countries believe in a certain destiny for Europe the United Kingdom never signed up to that Since the Bruce speech, we have been travelling in a different direction. In a way, the referendum we had in 2016 was just an accelerated emanation of this divergence of the reality that we were never going to be in the euro, we were never going to sign up to this or the other, we were never going to accept a fiscal union treaty. Um, The idea that you can put all all these genies back in their bottles and go back to square one is completely ludicrous. And um, actually rather dangerous, because um, if you give the people the choice and then you accept that choice and you say at the time this is final, uh, whatever you decide now will be your choice, you can't go back and revisit it.
0: Over here in the middle, and then I'll come to, there's a cluster over here.
3: Uh, Robert Moreland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament. Going back to your paper, I don't see anything in it that gives any confidence that there would be any advantage for British business in terms of exporting to the EU from anything you propose. I can see a lot of disadvantages And in that context, and in terms of the whole business of we would control our decisions, the single market and a lot of its legislation has been heavily influenced by the United Kingdom. And I would suggest to you that much of the legislation in the future will inevitably have influence on many of the areas of the single market, like transport, aviation, whatever, and yet Britain won't be there. Uh, So I don't understand where you're coming from in terms of the benefits to the British economy.
1: Well, um, where I'm coming from, I thought I had explained, that um, actually the single market is to our disadvantage. It has given us a huge trade deficit. Um, During our period of membership, our manufacturing has been sort of stripped out. Our national self-dependency on manufactured goods has almost... I mean, it's gone into a massive decline. It, this, this arrangement has not suited us. Um, and um, uh, there, uh, there was a steel company, if I may finish, there's a steel company at yesterday's launch who exports all over the world, Reed Steel. And the chief executive of Reed Steel says, we are a French-speaking company. We export to lots of French-speaking countries all over the world. It's impossible to export to France. And he said... Um, we used to export to Germany, but when we lost our export agent in Germany, we could never find another one. It's an impossible market to penetrate. Um, These are really highly protectionist economies, and yet we've locked ourselves into an arrangement where we make it very easy to sell stuff to us. Why should we carry on with this when we are perfectly capable of developing our own trading relationships? Look, I never understand this. We are the sixth largest economy in the world, we're not a pinprick. And yet, for some reason, we are deemed to be incapable of running our own affairs. When most countries in the world are outside the EU and they're fine. What is the problem? I appreciate there is a status quo and a lot of people will want to defend that status quo. A lot of people, I'm afraid the CBI, um, which, which um, you will have heard many times, uh, was wrong on Margaret Thatcher's economic policy, wrong on the ERM when we joined it, wrong when we left it, wrong on the euro. How many times has the CBI got to be wrong? Whose interests are they really representing? Why do so many employees of CBI companies vote to leave the European Union? Because that's not what really it's about. It's about th- this political decision. And what, the point about my remarks is the economics is pretty marginal either way. And it's in our hands as a sovereign state to decide whether we want to be prosperous and do the right things in our economy and do the right things with our trading relations with the rest of the world. Um, Actually, as a trading partner with the EU, we still will be quite significant. If they can do a free trade deal with Japan or Canada or the myriad little countries that they've done trade deals with, why wouldn't they want to do a trade deal with us? And the only reason they're being cussed, and Nigel Lawson made this point quite early on, he said the EU will never give us a good deal because they're in too fragile a state. I mean, the front page of The Guardian this morning, um, about every country has got um, a rise of anti-EU populism in it, because, uh, and and as soon as they, if they were to give us, I mean, hand us a really nice free trade agreement at the outset, they they would enfranchise the Eurosceptics in their own countries. That is why they're fighting so hard against this. That is why they have to give us a bad deal
0: straight
2: behind, in the middle. Uh, Toby Price, independent consultant. Uh, Sir Bernard, can we go back to the House of Lords report, uh, the much-quoted
1: House of Lords report in the last few days? Mm -hmm. Um, They inserted the word enforceable. There is no enforceable obligation Mm -hmm. to pay these debts. Do you believe there is any obligation, or do you believe they thought there was any obligation to pay the debts? Well, first of all, when when, um, uh, this... Article 50 was framed I don't think they ever conceived that any um, country would actually leave the European Union and personally I'm in favour of being generous and forgiving that they didn't draft it very well and under the Vienna Conventions if we were leaving under the Vienna Conventions there would be obligations and um, uh, personally I wouldn't say it now if I was a minister as the Chancellor has in order to try and um, I mean To concede that we'd have to pay everything that has been agreed so far, I think, is is going so far. In any case, if we were to leave now, we wouldn't have another two years of contributions, so that would immediately reduce it by about £18 And there's probably argument to be had over the other liabilities. But um, um, I do accept that um, uh, being the responsible and um, uh, cooperative country that we are, for us to walk out without paying a penny would be rather antagonistic. But that is what, the, that is what it says, and that is what the House of Lords Committee agreed. OK, got, uh,
0: next to
2: you. Uh, ben Alexander. You dis- described this decision as not an economic one, and consistent with that, you showed those charts where... Uh, you argued that the supply chain element of the economy, for Sorry, example, can you speak the, up? You, uh, you argued the supply chain element of the economy was essentially quite a marginal one. Yet, in your description of how. I'm not
1: dismissing the supply chain no, industry no, no. I no, think but they, made they the can be
2: You did make the argument yeah, that it shouldn't, it would effectively be the tail wagging the dog, if I could. Yes, you didn't make, You yes, didn't say those words. Certainly. but those were your, That was your argument. Yet, when you describe what would happen if we went to, say, a no deal arrangement and WTO rules, what I sense was most of your arguments about the European Union's response would be on marginal economic ones. For example, they would not let their interest be damaged at the port in Calais. They would not let their exports of certain yeah. um, items be damaged, etc. So my question is, why if we've self-admittedly made a politically prioritised decision, should we expect the European Union to react in an economically prioritised way?
1: I think that's... Um, that's um a rather astute question um, 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 I think that um, uh, because I mean I, 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 the European Union does set itself up to be a sort of champion of democracy um, ok it's, its treaties are written in rather absolutist irrevocable terms um, and um, their attitude tends to be um, not very democratic when confronted um, um, but certainly the values that the EU espouses... ...should be to recognise a democratic decision... ...and they say they recognise it. Um, but, I, but I think... Um, um, I, I don't think they should... Uh, maybe they do feel that the, EU, the UK choosing to leave the EU... ...is an attack on the EU. Um, I think we're much more worried about the attacks... ...that are coming from within the other 27 countries. I mean, for AFD to get 33% in the recent German elections... Is a wake up call. I see no sign that they're waking up. Um, I think it's a, a perfectly good point you're making, but um, uh, it doesn't mean that we should be held captive by the EU. I mean, just, just think about this a minute. One of the oldest democratic countries in the world votes to take back control of its own laws, and um, we're meant to be bullied into some kind of submission by the EU. What do you think that will do to this country? I mean, it's... It, a, it, 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 it's, it's yes, it was a perfectly legitimate question, but it doesn't mean we should give in to it. Mm. It doesn't mean we should give in to it.
2: Yes, but you, may oughtn't to expect the EU to sort of barge those economic pressures in the way
1: that we have. I think it's rather sad for people in Europe um, who have jobs and... And I mean, you know, if we if we finish up with tariffs on the trade between the EU and the UK, uh, the whole of the EU will collect about seven billion pounds a year. The UK will collect about 15 or 16 billion pounds on EU exports to the UK. So, you know, we could do quite a lot with that money. <laughs> um, um, but I don't suppose it's not it's the effect on the EU is going to do much good to them. Um, they will hardly notice it. It's less than our net contribution um, to the European budget. So um, I think common sense will prevail. I think at the moment, the, um, uh, uh, particularly the northern coastal states, uh, with most to lose, and some of the smaller countries, will kick up yeah. quite rough if, if they feel they're being, their economic interests are being trashed on the altar of European integration.
0: Let's, um, I'm going to take a couple. There's still quite a lot of hands up um, over here, and then and then in front of you. Uh, Joe Mays from Bloomberg. If Theresa May loses the parliamentary vote on the withdrawal agreement, what do you think the most likely timeline
1: of events is from that point? Right. How long have you got? Fr- no, uh, which, no, no, no. which particular extrapolation would you like? I mean, uh, the answer is. Okay, um, can
0: we just take another one as well? Okay. I just
1: want to Sorry, James Kidner from Improbable, a technology company. Um, if we take a longer perspective of all this, how long do you think it's going to take for the people of this country to start to take the whole political process more seriously? Because, let's face it, the last two years have not been a dignified spectacle, and you asserted early on that... Voters took this democratic decision very seriously and the result was decisive. I, mean, I think you can query both of those questions, th- th- those assertions. But how long is it going to take and what is going to be involved in patching up the sort of faith in politics in this country?
0: Great. So we have a precise question about if Theresa May loses, um, what happens next, and one about faith well, in politics. Uh,
1: if she loses the vote, there will be a, a great deal of scrambling and there will probably be more. Um, more negotiations to try and bring back, bring something back within the 21-day period before there's another vote. Um, incidentally, there could be another vote or another vote that you know that could go on for some time. Um, I do think that if Mrs. May does not bring um, a deal to the House that is voted through first time, her, her authority really is becoming hopelessly impaired, um, and that might provoke. A political crisis of its own um, uh, but um, if, it is, if the government does not get the deal through first time they will press the button if they haven't already pressed it or, on the no deal planning, they will have to do that um, uh, they've, they've held off that for a number of reasons until now um, on the other question I think that's um, um, I, I think w- during the vote leave campaign which I was involved with, we were constantly told um, by our chief campaign strategist that the turnout was going to be rather low because no one was really, you know, the, the degree of engagement in this topic was quite low. Um, that proved out to be completely false. Um, and every member of parliament has got, you know, came back with stories about how polling stations that are usually not very busy were, had queues of people outside them. That is what I mean by people taking their democratic duty very seriously. Since then, most people have been completely switched off. When I say this is a crisis of the Westminster mind, I can tell you most people in my constituency, I mean, you know, business people, farmers, um, uh, professional people, they will talk to me about it, um, uh, but... Most people are just getting on with their lives, as they do, and that's the nice thing about living in a democracy. After you cast your vote, you're just going to get on with your life. Um, uh, What will damage faith in politics? What damages faith in politics is politicians saying they will do one thing and then doing another. What will damage faith in politics is, if having said we're leaving the European Union, we had a referendum and we respect your decision, is then we turn around and say we don't respect it, that you you were too old or you were too uneducated you didn't understand, or you should have learned all these things that I understood before, but you didn't, and now you should understand, and therefore we can't leave. Um, th- this, you know, it's not democracy. I do come back to this question about, which my committee has looked at quite extensively, um, which is where a lot of the discomfort arises from, is the conflict between um, our long tradition of representative democracy and the overlay of direct democracy. That's fine when the referendums come out the way the political leaders wanted. Uh, It's rather less convenient when, um, as nearly happened in Scotland, and obviously it happened in this case, the um, political leaders get the result they didn't want, and then they have to implement it. Um, And one of the recommendations we made is that actually this kind of bluff call referendum, they shouldn't do that. Um, I advised David Cameron uh, before before he got completely hooked on the idea of of an in out referendum that in fact he should go for a mandate. He should set out a mandate in a white paper and say, this is my policy on the European Union, do you endorse this? And we discussed what that might be. And then he said, but who would vote against that? And I said, exactly. Because uh, basically our mantra should be... um, the United Kingdom should have a relationship with the European Union based upon trade and cooperation, i.e. not in this constitutional construct that (coughs) the European Union has become. And he said, who would vote against that? And I said, exactly. And somehow you think that that wouldn't wouldn't distill the choice he wanted, because, of course, I think he wanted to stay in the European Union as it is. Um, But I think we've got to repair the damage, the first thing we've got to do is deliver the referendum result.
0: Thanks. Let's squeeze in two more. We're coming right to the can end,
3: I'm
0: afraid. Here. Um, yes,
2: uh, here and, uh, and here. I'm Robert Hazel, an associate here at the IFG. The discussion so far has been very narrowly on economic issues. Could you say something briefly about the other aspects of the European Union, since it ceased to be the European Economic Community and got involved in justice and home affairs, terrorism and security the Erasmus Programme, all the wider non-economic forms of cooperation within the EU, do you want to retain all those, and don't you see those taking the sort of balance of costs and benefits of membership as being most of the strong benefits of membership? Okay. Well, Great, I, I,
1: I,
0: thanks, and uh, can we just okay. squeeze in the last, the last one? Yeah. Uh, apologies to many hands up.
4: Um, it's uh, Joe Owen, I work on the Brexit team here at the Institute for Government. Um, I've got a question with regards to the proposal on the Irish border and the paper that came out yesterday, which contains lots of um, interesting and um, technical and technological proposals for the border, which will certainly be like very valuable in the longer term. But the sort of exam question for now is something that can be negotiated in the next few months and in place by December 2020. So I guess my... my question has got two small parts to it. The first is, um, have you got any indication that the EU would accept the proposal, given it kind of goes against what was signed up to in the December joint report around any associated checks to do with border controls anywhere on the island of Ireland? And the second point being, given your experience on select committees, are you confident that the UK and business would be ready by December 2020 for your proposal?
0: Great,
1: thanks. Um, on the first thing, um, um, in the proposal I put to David Cameron before he got started out, it was about trade and cooperation. Most of what you talk about can be achieved by cooperation. There are some instruments like the European Arrest Warrant, which is, a, is highly controversial. Um, and uh, if we can keep the convenience of the European Arrest Warrant without its um, um, injustices, um, then I would be in favour of that. But um, there's no, absolutely no reason why we shouldn't have a student exchange system for uh, the MIRIS Erasmus. Um, there is a little amor prop in the European Union that, well, if you're not in the European Union, you can't participate in things, but non-EU countries participate in the Horizon research programmes. Um, Switzerland, Israel, for example. Um, the, um, so, and, and on, on generally on, on security, um, most of the real... Cooperation that matters is bilateral. Um, certainly on the intelligence sharing, uh, it's bilateral. And um, um, my advice to Theresa May on defence, for example, was you know, our commitment to European security is unqualified. And, it's, and in fact, of course, we've also got NATO, which is the real guarantor of, of European security, which is a big commitment to our, our big commitment to the security of the, uh, of the European continent. So I absolutely agree with you, and we do need to lay more emphasis on that. We do tend to get preoccupied, don't we, in what we disagree about um, and not talk perhaps more about what we agree about. And I I think as we get through this process, we do really need, and it's the point I made at the end of my remarks, we we need to sit down in rooms and talk um, um, consensually about the things we agree about as we leave the European Union, otherwise this country will not get its act back together again. On the Irish border, just correct you on one point. The whole point about the proposals that the ERG has put forward on the Irish border is that no new technology is required, nothing innovative is required. Everything that we have proposed is practiced somewhere in the world um, on the basis of existing technology and existing practices. And as I, as I said, every item that crosses the Irish border between the Republic and Northern Ireland is already on an information system. You cannot just take stuff across the border without relevant bits of paper. There there are already checks on that border, but they're done away from the border. Your VAT checks are done away from the border. Uh, Even your animal health checks are done away from the border. So it's not a big step to overlay the additional information you need for customs compliance checks. It is not a big step. And I think... um, Michel Barnier is hoisted by his own petard when he says there should be no checks anywhere on the island of Ireland. The checks he is proposing in the backstop will require checks on the island of Ireland in respect of what he proposes should be allowed to cross the North Sea, because there is going to be a diff- he proposes a different regulatory environment in the whole of the island of Ireland um, from the UK. But th- if that divergence occurs, so he's already breached his own principle. Um, the idea that um, one of the things we discovered was when livestock arrives from outside the EU, Rotterdam, it's not checked in Rotterdam. It's checked at a special... These are, these are very small volumes of breeding stock and things like that, but they're checked 30 miles inland at, at, at a special place to do it. That's the sort of thing we need. There needn't be um, barriers and checkpoints and soldiers in huts on the border in order to have customs compliance checks, and that's what people are worried about. People are worried about there being... Um, uh, visible infrastructure or people on the border, which w- could be, come, the subject of attack. That is completely unnecessary, um, and the rest is resolvable.
0: Great. We are going to have to stop there, leaving dangling perhaps Joe's second question of Are we ready? But uh, Bernard oh, yes. has already addressed addressed that. Well, I, think, I think
1: we're ready. We're ready. So. We we could do this in uh, uh, on the 30th of March. We we could um, have a slow, soft run into it from 30th of March if necessary
0: On that note um, Bernard Jenkins, thank you very much indeed Thank
1: you